You're listening to the Tell Me More podcast. We're masters of international business students here at the Darla Moore School of Business. And each week, we're sitting down with students, professors, and experts in the business world to tell the stories that connect us around the globe. We hope that you enjoy today's episode. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the Tell Me More podcast. I'm your host, Maggie, and today I'm joined remotely by my other host, Isha. Hi, Isha. Hey. And today we are going to be interviewing Craig Whitmer. So let me take a second to read his bio because I think it's so good. So Craig Whitmer, he's a Master of International Business candidate at the Darla Moore School of Business, and he's focused on international trade and investment and global strategy. Uh, Before he joined the Moore School, he studied diplomacy and international relations at Seton Hall University and read philosophy in the University Honors Program. He has experience in law, diplomacy, and business with experience in complex commercial litigation, transactions, and arbitrations, in addition to experience in and around the United Nations and European Union. Uh, there he studied or was working with peace and conflict issues, sustainable development, humanitarian affairs, and mass atrocity prevention. Um, he also worked for a New York Times four-star restaurant, which he says he will never stop, never stop talking about, um, and a startup moving company in Brooklyn as well. He's an avid reader, he works in the community, and his other interests include food, hospitality, and travel, which hopefully we'll touch on today, film and television, design, and obviously he's very humorous. So hi, Craig. Welcome to the Tell Me More podcast. Hey, everybody. I'm very glad to be here. I, I hope that I can live up to the um, the accolade of very humorous. I will do my best. I think you will. I think you will. So today we're, we're going to be touching on three different topics Um time allowing. So the first one's going to be like corporate foreign policy. And then we kind of want to dive into reflections on uh, what it means to be yourself in the big corporate world, the recruitment process, things like that. And then hopefully if we have time, talk a little bit about Craig's passion with cultural and food food diplomacy. Um, So let's get started. So corporate and foreign policy um, one thing you wanted to talk about, Craig, was how businesses operate in international affairs. Can you give us like a broad overview of uh, what you mean by that and why that interests you? Sure. So there's a textbook definition which comes from a paper in 2011 that says that um, describing corporate foreign policy as how businesses align their values and priorities across markets. So that connects to um, a Harvard Business School article or Harvard Business Review, I don't know which one, published in 2016. This was right after Brexit um, that focused on how every company needs to have a corporate foreign policy, which argued that businesses that put international affairs at the center of their business operations will succeed. Um, Now, I have a little bit of an issue with the argument itself, because it said that, you know, this particular moment in time is the reason for it, which assumes that geopolitics is back, Mm -hmm. that it had gone away at some point. Um, And I think that it is always questionable when an argument looks at one point historically and says, as a reference point, instead of taking reality or time as a 
total, but maybe that's just a me thing. Yeah. So do you think like companies are just now starting to care about it? And that's why it's trendy. That's why we're talking about it. Well, I think it's a combination of a few different things. So corporate foreign policy and how businesses have taken a, let's say a bigger role in the um, intellectual debate on international affairs is a consequence, not only of having more information to the internet, um, but in a sort of asymmetric power structure since globalization has brought this one playing world. Well, so case in point here, mm-hmm. what say that globalization has brought us to a certain playing field that fails to consider something like the East India Trading Company, mm-hmm. which was a corporation that, you know, not only colonized the world, but um, effectively had more power than most states at the time. So you think about a company like uh, Microsoft or Facebook or even your larger food corporates, you know, they have, in some cases, um, more influencing capacity and more quote unquote power than UN member state member yeah. states in terms of driving solutions to these transnational problems mm-hmm. or um, influencing anything at all from regulations to goal meeting. Yeah, and I think we learned the other day that McDonald's, uh, if it were a country, would have a higher GDP than Ecuador. <laughs> yeah. It's a great like, example. You just, you have, it, it is not always been the case that you have so many corporates like that, and it hasn't always been the case that you have that information readily available and well-known by, or potentially well-known by a majority of the people. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think like corporate foreign policy is going to become an extension of corporate social responsibility? I think we all know kind of the criticisms behind a lot of CSR policies is that it's just there in name, you know, like, yeah, you volunteer, but you're not actually bringing change. Do you think corporate foreign policy is going to end up something like that? Or do you think it's, you know, the same thing with a different name? Well, let's pull it back and think about it in a few different ways. Um, If a corporation, the business roundtable finally announced that they changed the definition of what the purpose of a corporation is. Now, this is something that Marty Lipton um, was talking about in the 1970s, that businesses and corporates should be operating for the stakeholder at the priority, not necessarily the shareholder. So the business roundtable has said the purpose of a corporation is to promote an economy that serves all Americans. Now, I'm not saying that this only came as a consequence of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery in succession, and that becoming a fact and well-known while everyone was in lockdown. But it's been a while, and I think that if corporations are going to, you know, looking at a new incoming administration, I've seen articles saying that, well, businesses now don't need to, you know, be driving sustainability because the government's going to be doing it or this, that, or the other thing. That's a choice for a business to make, mm. whether it was from, um, you know, how do you deal with uncertainty to how do you sort of be a good corporate citizen? And, if it's an extension of corporate social responsibility insofar as 
businesses work to meet the UN Sustainable Development Goals, that's great. But I think that their role is evolving and will be continued to be defined and redefined by not only governments in power across the world, but also by us people and their customers. Yeah. Could you tell us uh, a little bit about the UN Sustainable Goals that you mentioned? I don't think everybody knows about that, so I'd love to talk about that part. Sure. So a little bit of background. Um, the Millennium Development Goals, which are the predecessor to the predecessor of the SDGs, were 10 sustainable development goals that were working to um, chart these sort of grand goals that you work towards, alleviating poverty, um, providing food, um, eliminating violence against women, all of these sorts of aspirational goals. And they weren't, the Millennium Development Goals weren't completely met. There was a lot of progress made. But as we move towards the, you know, next set of those types of things, the Sustainable Development Goals are 17 goals with underlying metrics for how they'll be met um, that range on issues from water, housing, poverty alleviation, um, justice, peace, democracy, and good institutions to um, improving the rights of the child. There, there's a whole bunch of different things. Essentially, it is the United Nations agenda on how do we get to a world where um, everyone is able to enjoy, you know, uh, quality of life that is aspirational. Gotcha to the extent that we're able to avert um, the wrong end of climate change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess kind of picking back off of that in a kind of an odd way, but do you think that it's going to put a bad light on corporations, like another one, to say if they start interfering in some way? with governments and what governments are doing. I think, you know, in our classes, we've always talked about the struggle. I mean, we have a whole class talking about how governments, firms and states and this, you know, it's kind of a convoluted uh, relationship. Do you think if corporations start taking a stance, it's gonna turn into something that's just another way uh, to look down on them and kind of criticize them? Well, I, <clears throat> it depends, right? If, um corporation is deciding that it is in their best interest and in many cases it is or it is in the in line with the mission values and purpose of the company to take steps regardless of what setting aside whatever government regulations are or what people um, critics advocates have to say about them you know it is I find it I would assume it would be less likely to see um, corporations start to roll back and engage in practices that might not have been great and more likely to move towards sort of higher aspirations for what the company is. Uh, I can give you two examples. Um, Microsoft has gone out of its way since I think around 2017, maybe 2016, focusing on um, defending democracy. And so they've set up these projects to ensure election security, protect um, insulate political campaigns from hacking, um, you know, identify hate speech in different areas. And that's the type of work that we want to see. Wow. So on the sustainability side, 
you know, you've got a company like Restaurant Brands International who has um, not only developed a formula for feeding their cows, who then turn into hamburgers and various other products, um, they've reformulated their diets to reduce methane, um, the methane produced by around 30%. I think it was 30%, could be 10%, mm-hmm. in that range. Now, no one told them to do that. That was something that these companies just went out and decided to do. And Restaurant Brands International took it a step further and made all of that um, recipe, essentially, open source. Mm-hmm. So if companies want to lead on these issues, they can do that. Um, I, I don't think that anyone is feeling sort of bound by um, government or personal definitions of good, bad, etc. I think that's so interesting. Uh, and this is the last point I'll add before we switch to our, our second topic. But um, especially in the U.S., we view it as something where the government needs to put out incentives for big corporate to act on these initiatives. Um, and I think that's always the fallback. And I think it's it can kind of take place as like an excuse because then you're like, oh, it's the government's like fault. Like they need to put the incentives in. And then it takes like the responsibility away from corporate to actually like act, you know, not only in partnership with government, but on their own. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, we have this, the definition of what are the, the definitions of what should a corporate do or what should the government do and what are their their roles, those change all the time. And so if you're going to be a corporation or a government that decides it's what its role is every time there's a new CEO or a new president or something like that, you know, you're not going to have a strong brand identity. That's not Mm going to be a thing. You're not going to be able to set and meet long-term goals of what the company is you want to be and what impact you want to make. Now, look, it's not something that I think is necessarily going to be the case for every corporation, um, but for the ones that want to, you know, aspire to do something better, lead their industries, either in thought leadership or in best practices. There's a lot of room for improvement from a lot of different fields. Mm -hmm. Just like a quick note on that. I think it's also interesting to think about global cooperation from corporations. Like you mentioned, restaurant brand international making their recipe open source. I think it's takes a different light when you look at how corporations can cooperate and coordinate versus how governments do it. I mean, we all know how TPP worked out um, in the United States going back and forth on it. So I think that's an interesting point that you note, like there is a lot of room for improvement in industries. And I think corporations are uniquely positioned to take it forward in a way that a government may be limited uh, from. Wait, can, yeah. can one of you expand on what that, would you say TPP is? Just for oh, people who I may not know. Okay, go ahead. This is so. This is one of my sticking points, um, and I will do my best to not get too political here. Um, but the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a free trade agreement negotiated between the end of the Bush administration and the end of the Obama administration, where it was, um, I think, it was accepted by, I believe, it was voted on and accepted by the Senate. So this is a free trade agreement that is one part international trade, one part free trade, yes. Um, But it covers 40% of the world's GDP, including countries like uh, Singapore, Vietnam, Malaysia, Chile, Peru, 
the United States, New Zealand. I don't remember everybody off the top of my head, but suffice to say the um, Pacific Rim of countries, not including China, not including India. Mm-hmm. There were many tough negotiating points on it. And something that was groundbreaking was that the United States was able to gain market access for its cars in Japan, where parity on safety standards had never been provided. We got that done. Um, the other part of it that was really important that it was kind of missed, I think, by its critics was that what TPP also implemented were environmental labor, um, labor organizing um, and collective bargaining rights and privatization standards across all of the different countries that were involved in it. Mm. So if you're like Bahrain, where there is a large majority that is state owned of these different organizations and stuff, those start to take on a private aspect. Then moving from there, um, what does that all mean? What it means is that it shifts the trade balances away from the United States and China to, for example, on different manufacturing and textiles to the United States and Vietnam, which would not only undercut China's economic position, but provide a regional um, labor and environmental standards that would um, not directly force, but by an economic force, um, pressure the Chinese state to make different um, practice choices. Mm -hmm. So you have a trade agreement that was a huge topic of ire from both the far right and the far left for uh, on one side, um, the dispute resolution system, which allowed states and or corporates to bring claims against states and was sort of taken out of context. And then the various history of free trade agreements in the United States to the idea of exporting all of the manufacturing to foreign countries, which, you know, these are arguments that populists of all nature make. But what they didn't think about when they were making these arguments, or maybe they didn't want to talk about them, was that this was also a very important, almost two-decade-long piece of statecraft involved in balancing the United States relationship with China and the Asia and Latin American region. Mm. So... It was the first thing that was gotten rid of um, in the last administration, and it was all of the major candidates said that they wanted to step away from it because of how the media. I hate it when I start talking. About it. <laughs> uh, how the how the popular narrative around it became something that it was anti-worker, um, this globalist type of gobbledygook thing, and that it was all about the corporations when it was like. Friendos, that wasn't the point. The point <laughs> you missed here the was point. something else. Um, and was, um, the, yeah, like, guys, we're, we're talking, to, we have all these arguments about China now. And it's like, we're talking about how we're going to be less dependent upon China. And it's like, we just spent 10 years or 20 years working on that problem. And you just decided to tear up the thing that we were going to do. So what do you want? And now nobody's going to trust us again. So now trying to get back into the agreement, all of those gains we made, going to be hard to uh, bring back. I'm going to stop there, though, because I could rant about this 
particular topic for an extended period. It's very interesting, though. I'm glad I'm glad both of you brought that up because that, that's actually something I've never heard about before, um, or at least maybe I just don't remember. I don't know, but um, I'm glad that you brought it up. Just so to switch to our next topic, um, one thing you wanted to talk about, Craig, was reflections of just trying to be yourself in the middle of the recruitment process. Um, and this kind of pivots away from uh, our last topic because we're talking about corporate and with corporate just being so big and all of us here at Darla Moore seem to be entrenched in big corporate and maybe we're going after those jobs. Um, I would love to talk about this topic because it is very difficult to maintain who you are, your identity, and not compromise that uh, in the midst of the recruitment process. So would you be able to talk about that a little bit? I would love to talk about that subject. Um, um, You know, it depends on, on how going through the recruitment process, we hear a lot about how there is now, for some reason or another, don't know what it could possibly be. There is more of an emphasis on quote unquote diversity and inclusion and creating a more diverse workforce. All of all of the corporates are um, trying to facilitate a more diverse place. Now, I don't know what that means in practice. Um, and I don't know what that means in the actual recruitment aspect, because unless in my mind, unless you are going to create sort of a resume blind scenario, you know, you're not going to be able, you're not going to be able to change the inherent and implicit biases of the individual person who is looking through these resumes. Um, Isha and I uh, participate in a um, community development program called English with Friends, and we've been working with a group of West African and West African immigrants and refugees, and we're talking about how difficult it is to get a job when your name is um, Wendy, for example, mm-hmm. or um, it, it, the question of how do you be yourself becomes how much of yourself do you want to present mm. at the risk of um, not being what you think a company wants. Yeah. So, you know, when you have, let's say a company that says they want people who think differently or they want, um, they want to learn about how you approach a problem. And when they have the, the way that they will get to that is by going through a case study. That to me is a red flag to the extent that if you're looking for people who are thinking differently, if you are looking for people of different backgrounds and you create one standard from which everyone is judged, I don't understand the metaphysics on how you get to holistically reviewing each candidate Mm -hmm. because instead of going through and putting the resources into really um, learning about and evaluating individuals, it becomes a sort of um, who can do this one particular thing the best. And, you know, we learn about these specific methodologies and case approaches and all that. 
And I understand that there's a standardized test format, but it doesn't seem to comport with the idea of bringing in um, yeah. a, a talent pool. And I think a lot of what I've seen about diversity and inclusion, uh, unfortunately, is boiled down to skin to skin color. Yes. Uh, and the, like, I'm sure we've all seen back when we were applying to colleges, we get all those mailers and the front page, it would be a picture of five people, usually three guys, two girls, all different skin colors. Mm -hmm. And you see that repeated throughout. And I understand representation is important, but token representation is not important, mm -hmm. you know? And so I kind of see companies following that same idea of token representation. Um, but I applaud the companies that are taking it a step further. Uh, like recently, AB InBev held a recruiting event around diversity, and basically they asked us, and when I saw the talent or like the people on the Zoom call, because of course all recruiting is through Zoom now, uh, it seemed to be fairly diverse. And they basically asked us, how would you include diversity inclusion? What are things you would do? Which I think is an important question to ask people outside of your company. Uh, which is why I really enjoyed that session because it was basically two or three of us in the room with uh, someone from AB InBev and we just openly candidly talk about it. They explained a little bit about their supply chain and they're like, how would you position diversity inclusion initiatives? What would the metrics you use be? Uh, and what I liked most about it is at the end of that event, when we were all saying things, everyone was writing notes. Like, And these were fairly high ups, like director of brewing for all of North America, VP of logistics, or maybe director of logistics, things like that. And they were actively taking notes. And I think like that's one step forward for sure. And how to actively and accurately include diversity mm -hmm. and inclusion. And so those metrics are, are something that there seems to be a double-edged sword there, right? Um, when you think about how do you create, or how do you measure the diversity of workforce? Does, does that mean that we will simply hit enough folks who check a certain box? Mm -hmm. And do we have to measure and evaluate folks on how many boxes they check? Um, I don't know if that is the best way of achieving it versus saying because it is in it is demonstrated that it is in the best interest of our corporation to have as many different types of cultures identities and people to reflect and provide perspective and provide filters of saying that's a bad idea mm -hmm. or it's a good idea you know if you're thinking of that of how do you create the most effective and broadest set of perspectives and people rather than we need X amount of this, Y amount of that, and Z amount of this. You know, I would hope that that's how it would be done because otherwise, you know, there is, a, otherwise you are creating an actively discriminatory process in one form or another. Mm -hmm. And that really comport with the actual attempt to create a more equitable and just workplace. Yeah, um, I I would hope at least that that we're moving towards that. Me too. Me too. And I see this is the last point I'll add on it, but I see that so many people nowadays are um, encouraging the people going through the recruitment process. Um, when you're sitting there in front of an entire panel, 
and they ask, do you have any questions? You ask them, yeah, what does your diversity and, inc- and inclusion look like? And like, if you don't see anybody who looks like you on the panel or like within the halls of that organization, that should be a pretty red, a big red flag or an indication that like what they say they're doing and what they're actually doing are, are not messing up. Um, so Craig, another thing you wanted to talk about, um, this is kind of the fun part is the cultural and food diplomacy. So it sounds like food is something you are passionate about and you see it as a way to connect people around the globe. So would you be able to talk about that a little bit in the last few minutes that we have? Most definitely. Maybe this can be a teaser for another conversation. Yeah. Um, my view is that Anthony Bourdain was probably the most effective diplomat in the history of the United States. Um, you know, we have a lot of different people that you talk about, like Thomas Jefferson or, um, you know, Tom Shannon, John Kerry, all of these very sort of particular figures of history. But when it comes to representing the American people abroad, building cultural ties between people, and, you know, maybe he's the best journalist in the history of the United States, whatever you want to call him. Um, The way that connecting people based on food and based on areas of um, not necessarily agreement, but commonality. Mm-hmm. You, know, you set a, the dinner table or breaking bread as a euphemism. There's a reason why we call it that, right? Because when when you have parties, for example, that have these different types of viewpoints, but then can then sit down and have a meal. That's when you can start to really engage people. Is when you know you have this thing that everyone is doing. Everybody eats, right? Everybody so eats. I'll have to do. And so, you know, to me, that is, I think, the area where track two diplomacy, which focuses more on the informal things, um, dinners, conferences, um, panels, all of the sorts of things that are not formal public diplomacy. Track two diplomacy is where you can really start to have conversations and engagements. Um, I'll give you one example because I think we're running out of time. Um, I was fortunate to two years ago have gone to Cartagena, Colombia with a group of friends. And one of the things that we did there that was most, that was for me, one of the best travel experiences I've ever had was we organized a day long excursion to the local market and a day with the local chef. Now the chef um, had, the chef is the head chef of the restaurant La Cevicheria and La Cevicheria was the main restaurant that Anthony Bourdain went to and found this guy when he wanted to go to Cartagena. So, you know, when you're going through the local market of an area and you're trying the different types of food, things that you have never tried before, your palate and your taste buds are adapting to new things that just, they're not in your frame of reference. And so for me, that's one of the things that not only is expansive of kind of an individual's understanding, but then when you start to have that moment, if it's an Anthony Bourdain video or something like that, transferred back to the United States and broadly consumed, that's doing more to teach people about the world. And conversely, um, when you have somebody representing us around the world in the way that he did, you know, that to me is the sort of best of what we can be. Wow. So uh, maybe a teaser for the next 
could talk about. Yeah, I would love to talk about that. I think this conversation was so great because we really started out so broad and we're able to narrow it down to what we can do as individuals and like which individuals have made such a huge impact in diplomacy and corporate foreign policy. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I, um, you know, I think that conversation and working through things and figuring stuff out is one of the things that is always a fabulous use of time. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite things to do. Like, I think it's also always made better by the addition of food. So I really enjoyed your take on cultural diplomacy through food. I think that's an amazing idea. And maybe some corporate foreign policy uh, creators can take that into account as well. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of the things that I think that I've, I have met the most in the COVID times is that we don't, and one of the things that I hope returns the quickest or we find a way to do it is to be able to just sit down personally, have our presence, have a meal together, eat, talk, drink, be merry, do all the things that we used to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we get back to there soon hopefully soon well craig thank you so much for coming on the tell me more podcast you have always been such an informative and positive and uh, just like a bright light within our cohort i think i've told you this before so thank you for that and then thank you for being here today we really appreciate it thank you for the high praise i i hope to live up to that someday and i will see you guys next time and i will see you in class awesome bye thank you so much for having me Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tell Me More podcast. We hope this conversation brought a new perspective to international business and encourages you to more thoughtfully engage with the world around you. If you'd like to find out more about us, leave feedback, and get in contact, visit us on Instagram at Tell Me More Podcast. You can also find more episodes on Spotify and all major streaming platforms. But in the meantime, be good, do good, and we'll talk soon.